Good morning. Welcome to the third legislative forum in a series of three being sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Johnson County during the 2022 Iowa Legislative Session. My name is Duha Tuil and I'm a member of the League of Women Voters of Johnson County and I will be moderating today. Our timekeeper for tonight today is Janet Wall, also a League member. The League is dedicated to educating voters on political and ballot issues. We encourage informed citizen participation in government. Membership is open to all people, regardless of genders age 16 and older. We invite you to join us. We could use your time, your talent, and your financial support for our ongoing operations. To learn more, speak to one of our members or reach out to us through our website or Facebook page. These forums are designed to give local citizens an opportunity to discuss current state legislative issues with their elected officials while the legislative session is underway. All Johnson County legislators were invited to participate in today's forum. Senator Kevin Kenney, District 39, Zach Walls, District 37, or excuse me, Senator Kevin Kenney, District 39, Representative David Jacoby, District 74, and Representative Bobby Kaufman, District 73, are unable to join us today. Today's forum focuses on issues related to social justice. Co-sponsors for today are LULAC Council 308, Johnson County Affordable Housing Coalition, Iowa Shares, Johnson County Interfaith Coalition, Iowa Civil Liberties Council, and the Center for Worker Justice. I would like to introduce our legislators, Joe Bolcom, District 43, and Zach Walls, District 37. Our representatives, Mary Masher, District 86, Amy Nielsen, District 77, and Christina Bohannon, District 85. We will start the forum with three minute summaries from each of our legislators on recent legislative matters of interest to them individually. Starting with Senator Bolka, representing District 43. Go well, ahead. Thank Senator you. Thank, thanks so much for the introduction. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. I'm going to use my time this morning to thank the League of Women Voters uh, for bringing us together for so many years. I have, this is going to be, I think, probably one of the last League of Women Voters forums I'm going to be attending as a Johnson County elected official uh, for the past 30 years. And I can tell you from uh, the moment I got involved in, in Johnson County, uh, elected office and, and was an elected official. The League of Women Voters have been uh, an active, vibrant part of engaging the, our democracy. And I'm going to name a few people that if you go back 30 years or maybe even 20 years or even 10 years, you'll recognize some of these folks. But uh, I, I, when I started in elected office, I, would, I interacted with Pat Jensen and Carol Spaziani and Jean Lakin and Linda Levy and Lolly Eggers and Ann Boberg and Linda Schreiber and Nancy Lynch and Ann Spencer and Barbara Herring and many others uh, in starting on the Johnson County Board of Supervisors. Uh, I, I felt like I was babysat by the League of Women Voters 
who back in the in, in the mid '90s were, was interested in transparency in county government. Uh, and here we are today uh, with this forum focused on state public policy issues. I also want to say congratulations and thank you to Representative Mary Masher, who will also be, uh, uh, this may be one of her last League of Women Voters uh, official spring forums as, a, as an elected official. Nobody has done more. Uh, for Johnson County kids, Johnson County's public education, the Representative Masher. And I just want to publicly again thank her for being such a dear colleague and but such a fierce uh, advocate for people in our in Johnson County and surrounding areas. And I want to finally say we have a bunch of really great candidates that are running for these seats in, in, in Johnson County. Uh, and we're excited about that. We're going to have some fantastic primary. Uh, so good luck to all of them. And we still have, uh, you know, the, our, our existing delegation. I see uh, Representative Nielsen. I know others are, have conflicts today. And we're joined by Senator Zach Walls, who's be, become a terrific new leader of, of our caucus, the Senate Democrats, and is working. You, know, you can't believe how hard he's working every, literally every day to uh, make make it better for our, our team and, and to win some seats. And I know this is not a partisan uh, operation this morning, but Senator Walls is gonna do some really, really great things for Democrats and for our state. So I wanna, st I'll stop with that. There's plenty of issues to talk about, but again, thank you so much to the League of Women Voters for making our democracy strong, especially now as as we face so many uh, so many threats out, out there around us. So. Thanks so much. I look forward to people's questions and thanks for joining. Thank you, Senator, Senator Balcom. Representative Mary Masher, District 86. Good morning, everyone. And thank you again to the league and our sponsors this morning. I do appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words, Joe. We're gonna miss you too. And um, I know you're still gonna be around and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you're going to do in your next chapter as well. So thanks, everyone. We do have a great coalition of uh, Democrats from Johnson County and our folks, um, our leaders in many of the committee work. And obviously with Zach in the Senate and Amy in the House and Dave Jacoby and um, Christina running for Congress, we've got people that have really stepped up and are doing the work. Um, we're glad Kevin's running again. <laughs> Um, in the Iowa County and that new district for the Senate. And um, we just have a good, good group of people. And I just wanted to give a shout out to all of them because um, you are well represented in the State House. And I just wanted to thank them as well. Um, I wanted to start off with some really fun news. I had the City High Jazz Band come to the State House this week and they were in the Capitol on Monday morning in the House Chamber and they performed for over an hour. And um, talk about bringing smiles to people's faces. We need some uplifting things going on, right? And uh, <laughs> these, students, these students were amazing. Um, it was a group of 25 students from City High and it's their elite jazz band. And uh, they were absolutely phenomenal. And again, represented our community so well. And I look again at how important the arts are in our schools and why we need to continue those programs. And again, giving those students an outlet like that. Um, they enjoyed the day. And I know that um, 
uh, City High and the city school, our school district should be really proud of the students that are working in our schools and are, are getting their degrees and going on to college. I think there are many of them, whether it's community college or four-year colleges, are, are working really hard to, to do the right thing. So thank you. I'm going to stop there, and I'm looking forward to your questions today. And I have lots of things to share in terms of legislation we're working on. Our big job right now is the budget. And I just wanted to mention that that obviously shows stark differences between Democrats and Republicans because their priorities oftentimes are not ours. And um, we can talk more about that when we get to that portion. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Masher. Senator Zach Walls of District 37. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, State Senator Zach Walls. Uh, I represent the west side of Iowa City, all of Coralville, uh, rural Johnson County, going up to Solon, and currently represent uh, Cedar County to the east and Walton uh, down in Muscatine County. Uh, following the redistricting process, I will be representing North Liberty, uh, and I will be losing Cedar County and uh, in Muscatine County. Um, so I'll be taking those over for uh, from Senator Kinney, but really look forward to working with Representative Nielsen uh, to represent that community and to continuing to work with Representative Jacoby on uh, representing Coralville and, and the west side of Iowa City. Um, and I'll also be picking up the uh, uh, neighborhood of Manville Heights in uh, kind of the north side, uh, north and west side there of, of Iowa City. Um, I, words can't really um, fully express how much we're going to miss Joe and Mary. I, I don't want this to be purely a uh, goodbye tour this morning, but um, Joe, you've just been an incredible uh, mentor, friend, partner, uh, and we're going to miss you a lot. I know that you're only going to be a phone call away, but uh, we're going to miss you uh, every single day in the in the legislature. Um, you know, everybody who's ever seen me and uh, Representative Masher on Zoom probably already knows uh, that she's been an important role model for me since I was literally a child. Uh, so, Mary, we're, we're going to do our best to continue your advocacy and work uh, for the young people here and not just our community, but across the state of Iowa to, to carry that torch. But uh, it will certainly not be easy. And uh, but we, we wish you all the best in, in uh, your your time here after the legislature. Um, as, as both Joe and, and Mary mentioned, there's going to be a lot for us to talk about uh, this morning, uh, whether it's some of the tax policy that's happening, um, whether it's some of the outstanding issues uh, concerning the bottle bill uh, or I will and the local option sales tax that are out there. Uh, and we can certainly get to those. But I also wanted to just take a, a brief moment to underscore how special it is that we get to do exactly what we're doing this morning and that we get to have the participation of everyday citizens talking with their lawmakers and holding them accountable and asking questions as we're watching what's unfolding today in Ukraine and the assault on lowercase d democratic values in that country by uh, the Russian Federation. I think all of us um, should just take a moment to appreciate how important and how much we value the democratic process and just remind ourselves that we can't take it for granted uh, because the exact same forces that uh, ultimately culminated in the invasion of Ukraine, um, those forces are present in this country. And for the moment, they are certainly in the, in the minority, the small minority, uh, but it requires an actively engaged citizenry, each and every one of us every single day, uh, to continue to fight for those values, to talk about why those values are important, uh, and to safeguard them here in this country. So uh, I'm excited to be here this morning and looking forward to the questions and the conversation. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Senator Zach Walls. Representative Amy Nielsen, District 77.
Are you on mute, Representative? Sure was, thank you. Um, you'd think I would be better at this by now, um, but I just wanted to also echo um, um, everyone else with how much we are going to miss um, Joe and Mary. Um, both of them have been just wonderful mentors to me and helped me learn so much. And, uh, you know, especially when there was very little time to learn so much um, coming into the legislature is definitely like drinking from a fire hose. And um, without the, the guidance and support of, um, of people like Joe and Mary, um, it really would be impossible for, for new people to come in and, and end up being successful. Um, so I, I definitely want to say thank you to the both of them. We will miss you. And I am definitely not looking forward to all of the questions you are going to have for us as private citizens, because they're going to be very, very pointed questions, I'm sure. And I'm really going to have to, to, to learn up on things before I talk to you guys next year. Um, I, I am um, working very uh, closely on the the House's version of the new bottle bill. Um, I'm, I believe that we're hoping next week there will be some negotiation between the House and the Senate, and, and we may be able to get something um, put together um, that we can agree on and, and hopefully get to, the, to each chamber's floor for a vote. Um, we did a lot of debating this past week. Um, and the House passed a lot of pretty, pretty bad stuff. Um, and so I'm sure we'll get into all of that as we as we continue here this morning. And um, I just look forward to um, all of your questions. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for your updates on legislative issues. At this time, we will begin questions, starting with one from the league and one from each co-sponsor followed by questions from members of the audience. Audience members are invited to enter their questions into the chat at any time. And you guys can go ahead and do that literally at any time, starting from now. We remind all participants that questions are limited to one minute. Please observe this time limit so that legislators can address as many questions as possible. Legislators, please limit your responses to two minutes. All legislators are welcome to join in responding to each question. So the first one is gonna be the lead question. So here, here it goes. House file 2438 was moved to appropriations which keeps it alive past the second funnel and makes various changes related to public assistance programs under the Department of Human Services, DHS. In the proposed bill, there seem to be many additional bureaucratic steps to get services approved. Please comment on this bill and how it might impact individuals who need these services. Um, this is Senator Bokum, I'll go ahead and start. It's, um, this has been a bill that's been around for a while. I believe it's a, uh, Jason Schultz bill on uh, ver verification of eligibility for people on food stamps among other things. Um, it's pretty mean-spirited. Um, we have a really good eligibility system now that makes sure that people that deserve and qualify for benefits like food stamps get those food stamps. And the Department of Human Services is actually working to improve the system. So I think the bill is unnecessary. I don't, I don't have a good sense at this point whether we're going to waste time on it or, or in terms of like spending more time debating 
whether it goes forward. It's been out there for several years and the Republicans have, even there, even some Republicans are not thinking it's a bill that ought to be done. So I think it remains to be seen what will happen between now and adjournment. And I'll just comment that that's my hope too, is that we don't take it up. Um, just because something is on the unfinished business calendar doesn't automatically imply that it will be debated. I don't think they have the votes to do it right now. And I think that's what's going on um, in the House Republican Party is they're having those negotiations or discussions. And oftentimes we see bills that um, obviously don't have the support that get pulled from the calendar. And that happens all the time when they discuss them within their caucus and realize they don't have the votes on the floor. They won't get Democratic votes for it, as you can well imagine. It, Joe's right. They're just mean-spirited. I don't know why there's this vendetta against poor people, but obviously those folks who are struggling to put food on the table for their families and to make a living don't need the state government coming down on them and trying to shame them and make them feel as though they're less than because they can't afford the food they need for their own families. So I'm hopeful that that bill will not move forward. Um, it is just a really and truly a mean-spirited piece of legislation. The, the only thing that I would add to that is that essentially with the, the bill does, does two things, if I'm re recalling correctly from our debate on this topic last year. Um, the first one is that it, it creates some new um, guidelines for evaluating eligibility um, to make sure that the people who are receiving these funds are folks who actually um, qualify for them. There, there were some challenges, as, as Senator Mulcom alluded to in the last couple of years, um, where there were, it, it was not that folks who um, needed help weren't getting the support. It was that there were, there were actual, you know, criminals out there who were trying to abuse our system. Uh, but as Senator Volcker mentioned, the department is undertaking action to prevent that kind of fraud from taking place. Um, what was not happening was, was you know, folks who kind of everyday people, normal people, uh, trying to take advantage of, of the system. That wasn't what was happening. There was organized criminal activity, but that's being addressed separately. The other thing that the bill does is that it creates essentially um, it, it raises the, the requirements to be able to qualify for this assistance. And, and one of the challenges with that is that if you're, uh, if you think about folks who, who need this kind of um, assistance from, from the state, uh, it's typically because they've lost a source of, of income, they've been laid off or, or have experienced some kind of an accident that prevents them from working, um, or uh, their hours have been slashed or, or for whatever reason the, the case may be. Um, however, uh, the bill would also create a new asset test where essentially if you have an asset, for example, a car that's worth, uh, you know, say $2,000, um, you would not qualify for that assistance and you would be forced to potentially sell your car before you could qualify for this assistance. But if you sell your car, it can make it a lot harder to get to work. So it's a very short-sighted bill uh, that would create real challenges to the implementation of the program and would undercut the spirit of the program, which is to help folks who need a hand, not force them to sell down their entirety of their assets before they're able to put food on the table. Thank you. Thank you for all, all from all our legislators. Now questions from co-sponsors. So we're gonna go ahead and start with the Johnson County Affordable Housing with Sarah Barron asking the question. 
Hi everyone, can you see me? Or hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, awesome. Um, so my question today is about um, housing, obviously. Um, and I wanna talk about private equity firms. Um, you know, um, we've started seeing across the state um, a continued growth in private equity firms who are ransacking our affordable housing stock. Uh, we have landlords and property owners who are very well organized um, in effectively lobbying against legislation that would um, protect tenants and in fact have rolled back tenant protections even further. So my question for you today is what messages, if any, do you think that uh, would be most effective in calling on all of our state legislators uh, to engage in work um, that's needed to protect the Iowans from, um, from that encroachment on our housing affordability. Hey, good morning, sir. I can try and take a quick crack at that. You know, in terms of messages that, that speak to lawmakers, you know, I, I certainly think that um, talking about the impact this is going to have on their constituents, every single lawmaker represents people who um, depend on affordable housing sources and, and who are being priced out of the market because of these exact forces that you just alluded to. Um, unfortunately, the, the challenge is not, um, at least from my perspective, that there's a lack of interest among rank and file members, Democrats and Republicans alike on this issue. The problem is that the Republican Party is led by people who have essentially been captured by these lobbyists and, and their political action committees. Uh, and those Republican political leaders have told their rank and file members, including people like my friend, Representative Brian Losey, who has done some really good work trying to move this ball forward, that unless those industry groups and their political action committees and lobbyists sign off on these proposed reforms, they will not be brought to the floor for a vote. Um, it hit, this, this issue has been a very eye-opening experience for me, and, and maybe I came in a little bit naive, but I really believe that if there was good bipartisan work to try and find middle ground compromise, that we would be able to put in place common sense protections that would level the playing field to make sure that residents and landlords were, were being treated fairly on both sides. That is not what has happened um, after an exhaustive process in, in 2019 and 2020 of trying to bring Democrats and Republicans together. Uh, Republican leadership spiked those bills despite having strong, strong uh, groups of, of bipartisan legislators on, on both the Senate side and the House side um, because they have been bought off by uh, powerful political action committees and, and their lobbyists. And so I, I wish I had better news for you, but that's, that's my read of, of where we are at the moment. Mary Masher. Thank you. I was just going to comment that the one bill that we did this year to help and support tenants, especially those who are in apartments, um, it came from our university students and they had worked on this for a number of years where it's a housing checklist and it wasn't, it isn't mandatory, but what it allows a student to do or any individual is when they move into an apartment, there's a checklist on things that are broken or need to be repaired. And then again, um, there can be pictures taken and identified so that when they move out, they aren't charged for things that they didn't do. And a lot of times we have um, unscrupulous landlords. I, and I certainly don't believe all of them are, but some that 
um, charge students for things that they didn't damage in the first place and that students couldn't even get the landlords to fix or repair. So again, things like that are helpful. But Sarah, yesterday when we were on the Affordable Housing Coalition call, one of the comments was allowing some of our folks that live in manufactured homes the opportunity to buy land and to be able to own land as a, as a corporation or a group. And then they're the ones who are in charge of the park. And there are efforts to do that more throughout the state and in other states as well. But again, giving people that power over their own destiny is what we need to be able to provide. And obviously those are things that are opportunities for us. Um, affordable housing is extremely important, especially when it comes for the working poor who have a very difficult time um, being able to find places to live and work that are affordable in the community where they work. So those are some things that I, I was excited to hear on the call, and I'm hoping that we can pursue some of that within our community. Thanks. Thank you so much. So it doesn't seem that our planned representative from LULAC was able to join us. Is there another LULAC representative who like stepped in to fill the role by chance? Okay, well then we'll just move on. Um, Iowa shares, Holly Hart. Are you on mute, Holly? Okay, that's okay. We will move on to the Johnson County Interfaith Wilson, Coalition. Do her, uh, oh, oh uh, okay. The, oh, I'm sorry. Nope, go ahead. I made a mistake. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so we will move on to our another co-sponsor with Johnson County Interfaith Coalition with Peg Buska, and she will go ahead and ask the question. Good morning. Thank you, legislators, for being here. I'm Peg Boska, representing the Johnson County Interfaith Coalition. In Iowa, the rate of gun deaths has increased from 56%, has increased 56% from 2011 to 2020 compared to a 33% increase nationwide. Right now, black people are 16 times more likely than white people to die by gun homicide. These statistics are due in large part to the weakening of Iowa's gun safety laws. These, on November 8th, Iowans will vote on an extreme version of the Second Amendment. The three other states with a similar amendment rank in the top five for total gun deaths. That's based on average death rate per 100,000 um, from 2016 to 2020 per everystat.org. Would you advise your constituents to vote for this proposed amendment or against it? Uh, I would, Senator Bolcom, uh, th Peg, thanks for the question. Um, I would, of course, advise people to vote against it. It's, it, if, if, it, if we change our constitution to add the language of this proposed uh, gun amendment, it will very likely make it impossible for the legislature to pass any policy that would include things like background checks, um, for example. Uh, and it might, it might strike down any kind of uh, gun safety legislation that's either currently on the books or 
or thought about in the future. This is an enormous issue. Um, you know, the, the, we had the shooting over in, De, in Des Moines at East High School just in the last couple of weeks here. It's a present danger in every, in every school in Iowa. Um, over the years, I, I've, I've introduced lots of different bills. We have a group of people in charge of state government that are, uh, don't think we need any laws related to uh, guns at all. Um, so it's been a, it's been a challenge and uh, they want to put this before voters. And I hope Iowans will uh, uh, educate themselves and, and make the right vote on this. We, we have uh, we, we could use more gun safety laws, but we certainly don't need to peel away the ones that we have. I, I would uh, share Senator Bolcom's assessment. You know, Iowa is one of only a handful of states that does not have the federal. So there's the federal Second Amendment about the right to keep and bear arms. And Iowa is one of only a handful of states in our country that does not have that language in our state constitution, uh, presumably because when our founders were writing Iowa's constitution, they fully understood that the Second Amendment at the federal level applied down to the state level. Um, however, gun um, rights uh, activists are taking advantage of the fact uh, that, that Iowa is one of the states that does not have that language and are not adding the federal Second Amendment to the Iowa state constitution, as Senator Bolka mentioned. They are taking the federal Second Amendment and then they are souping it up with uh, a quote unquote strict scrutiny standard, which for those of us, including me, who didn't go to law school, essentially means that any laws that would be trying to um, uh, limit any access to firearms, including things like background checks or needing a permit to carry a handgun, would essentially be much easier to strike down if this amendment goes into the Iowa State Constitution. And so if you vote yes in November for this, this constitutional amendment, you are voting against background checks. You are voting against any kind of permitting process for handguns or for long guns. Uh, you are voting against any restrictions that would go on something like a bump stock, which can convert a semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic weapon. And so that's what we're voting on in November. The question is not, um, do you support uh, gun safety or do you oppose gun safety? It's, uh, are you voting for the most reckless version of gun policy in the state, in the history of the state of Iowa? That's what was on the ballot in November. All right, thank you guys so much. So we are gonna go ahead and, and try again with Iowa Shares and Holly Hart. If you can go ahead and, and state your question. Hi, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, having difficulty with my connection, so hopefully this will come through. Um, I was going to ask about uh, another uh, economic issue, which was the um, unemployment uh, change in unemployment uh, compensation or eligibility, I guess, or, or rules that were there coming up. Um, and I know that hasn't been, that's been final approved yet. Uh, the other thing, though, was that uh, I don't think anyone has brought up yet is the issue of uh, the legislation. Um, And I, so I, I guess I'm sticking. The, I'm sorry, able to see. Yeah, I'm sorry, able to see. I'm sorry, I, uh, 
connection is not working well. Um, I'm assuming that the trans um, exclusion, I would like to hear uh, comments about what, what might be the way going forward with this. Um, Holly, I don't believe we got all of that. Um, if you don't mind writing it either in the chat or through email or through text message, and we will convey your question um, next, if that's okay. In the meantime, let us uh, move on to Iowa Civil Liberties Council with Martha Hample. Hello, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to thank um, the League for all of your work and for continually providing this opportunity for communication uh, between the community and our legislators. Um, also, many thanks um, to our representatives for participating this morning. Um, I know there are a couple similar bills, but our question is regarding at least House File 2577. I believe it was renumbered on the 24th. Um, the exact wording of the amended version describes the bill as an act relating to education, including requiring the boards of directors of school districts and the governing boards of charter schools to publish certain specified information, modifying, modifying provisions related to required social studies instructions and providing uh, civil penalties. Um, we have heard that this bill would make it possible to ban particular books and materials in schools and that teachers could face fines or firing for not complying. I received an email yesterday from someone in support of this bill explaining that the bill would only make it possible for parents to request that their own children opt out of reading materials they didn't approve of. Thank, thank you. Uh, when I look closely at the wording of the bill, that is not how I personally interpret it. Um, can you please add some clarification on this for us? And also, should this bill pass, uh, what potential implications would this bill have on other processes, protections, and rights in Iowa? So the bill itself uh, obviously is problematic in terms of how it was actually written. And right now we have requested a fiscal note on it because we're, it is our belief right now that it will cost millions of dollars for districts to be able to publish um, their curriculum and what they have, uh, what the materials that they're using online. Obviously, parents have every right to know what is being taught in our schools. And every parent has a right to come in and take a look at any of the materials that are being taught. Um, we hope that when students are bringing home their schoolwork, parents are looking at their books and looking at the materials that they're utilizing and that they're able to see and be a partner in that child's education. Unfortunately, that isn't always happening. And what we're seeing is this attempt to censorship, uh, censor what is being taught, censor materials, specific books, that kind of thing has been um, discussed throughout the legislative session. If you remember, there was a senator who wanted to jail teachers for teaching certain books that they felt were pornographic. And again, it, we're seeing this movement and we are fighting it tooth and nail. Um, obviously, we want parents to be engaged and be able to see what students are 
um, learning and what they're using for materials, but they don't have the right to censor or tell the rest of the district that they can't utilize that. And so this is a bill that we are trying very hard to kill. Uh, once the fiscal note gets attached and they see what it will cost, we've had estimates anywhere from 27 to $50 million. Districts don't have that kind of money. And a lot of the material that they do have is copyright protected, so they can't put it up online. So again, um, we're seeing these movements across the state, across the nation, and we are doing everything we can to put a stop to it. All right, thank you so much. So I'm gonna go ahead and read Holly Hart's question, who was with Iowa Shares, and we completely understand, Holly, we, we all can have bad connections with our internet, so very common problem. Um, so her question is, assuming further talk will take up the matter of unemployment benefit changes still under consideration, of no one else raise it, if no one else raises a question, I would assume further talk will take up the matter of unemployment benefit changes still under consideration. If no one else raises the issue, I would be interested in your thoughts on the recently adopted legislation that will bar trans women from participating in women's sports. How do you think that this will play out? Do you have ideas on what may be going done going forward? Well, on, on the unemployment issue, this is this is a really important um, question. So essentially, uh, Iowa for a, a long time has had a, a very strong unemployment system. So if someone experiences um, a layoff or, or their business shuts down or their plant uh, has a temporary suspension, um, you're, if, you, if you work, you earn an unemployment benefit that helps supplement your income during that period of, of not having full-time employment. Um, what Republicans are proposing is essentially a few different things. First, um, removing that protection if the business is shut down. Uh, second, shortening the amount of time that your benefits last from 26 weeks to 16 weeks. Uh, third, um, eliminating benefits in the very first week that you're experiencing unemployment and some additional more technical changes, but that essentially continue to stack the deck against people, Iowans who have been laid off. Um, the sum total of all of these changes, as it was currently debated in the Iowa Senate and the Republicans in the Iowa House of a slightly different uh, version, the sum total of all of this is that over the next decade, the state of Iowa, if we change, if we move forward with the changes that went out of the Iowa Senate, would take $1 billion out of the pockets of Iowans who are out of work and hand it over to some of the largest and wealthiest and most profitable corporations in our state. A billion dollars with a B from people who desperately need that money because they are experiencing unemployment, uh, taking it from them at the time that they need it the most and giving it to these big businesses. And again, I want to stress, this is an earned benefit. We're not talking about public money or taxpayer money per se. This is a benefit that you have to earn by working. The governor's description of this benefit as being some kind of a hammock is disrespectful, out of touch, short-sighted, and, and just, I mean, incredibly insulting to the people of this state.
All right. Thank you so much. Um, so we are now and, going and, to- and The one thing I would add just briefly to the question about transgender girls and women participating in sports, I think the next step is that there will be litigation. Um, and this is ultimately a, a question that will be decided um, in, in the legal system, in the judicial system, um, because I think that there is a very real question as to whether or not this bill is constitutional. All right. Thank you so much. All right. So now we will go to our last co-sponsor, and that is the Center for Worker Justice with Charlie Eastman. Uh, thank you, Duha. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you very much. In 2016, Ed Cole, Justin Doyle, Kevin Munson, and Jeff Maxwell formed the North Dubuque Limited Liability Company and bought a large swath of land, including the Forest View Mobile Home Park, with the intention of creating a large commercial development. This is all taking place in Iowa City. As soon as they learned of the sale, residents united in the Forest View Tenants Association to ensure that any development that destroyed the Forest View neighborhood would include new affordable housing the condition of, as a condition of its zoning and to protect hardworking but underpaid families to make up the Forest View mobile home community who would otherwise be forced to re relocate. The owner's progress on the commercial development has since been marked by chaos, while housing and living conditions in the Forest View mobile home park have dangerously deteriorated. Now the owners say they cannot live up to their requirements to build a new neighborhood and replace what is being destroyed. Residents have done their part to help each other. The city is doing its part. My question is, tell us how you would make sure a new neighborhood is developed so that residents will continue to live together as a community in safe and affordable homes. Charlie, you might want to give us a little more background because I remember when this was originally discussed and it was my understanding that there was going to be an apartment complex or some kind of a housing unit that was going to be built nearby, not obviously in the same location, but in a nearby location. Why has that not moved forward? I don't know if there are city, um, I thought there were city uh, ordinances that they had supported and were going about in terms of getting the permits to build that. What has been the holdup? I don't quite understand what happened locally to prevent that from uh, you know, moving forward. Well, in short, Mary, the uh, owners uh, have uh, said that they're not going to fulfill their obligations for that zoning requirement. The zoning requirement will, re will remain. The owners can't do anything with their property as it stands now without fulfilling their requirement. If the property is sold, new owners would have to uh, fulfill that requirement uh, also. But as it stands right now, the owners have said they're not going to pursue to developing a new neighborhood. And the, the living conditions that people are uh, living in in the park right now are uh, unacceptable. Is Can the city do anything to hold their feet to the fire? and have them fulfill a promise that was made or a commitment? They, the city can prevent them from doing the develop, the, the, the overall development. That's the city's power. And the city can, in our view, uh, step in and do the development of the new neighborhood using a combination of financial methods. And our question this morning for you, for the state, uh, for the state legislatures, is what assistance can you uh, provide to the city uh, to and, and the community to fulfill the residents' uh, 
uh, needs. So Charlie, what I would say is there's the housing trust fund that we have in terms of affordable housing projects. And Iowa City and our community has utilized those dollars at the state level really well. We've, we've got good grant writers locally and they have been stepping up to the plate and obviously working with our community to bring those grant dollars into Iowa City and Johnson County. And so I would hope that the, that would continue. We've been, obviously we would like to see more money put into those programs because this is not just an urban issue. We have some of the highest housing costs in the state in terms of the cost of living in Johnson County. And that creates some enormous problems. Part of it is because we're a university community and students are willing to pay those high rents, but it also cuts out of the market a lot of those people who are in low, that are low income folks who need that housing as well. And so that's where we run into some of the, the issues and problems, but um, putting more money into the housing trust fund would be one way to address that. Yeah, Charlie, I, I spoke briefly to some of the challenges that we faced in the legislature around trying to strengthen protections for Iowans who live in mobile or manufactured homes. Um, we also, to, to Mary's point, um, last year were able to uh, work with Republicans to double the investment that the state makes into affordable housing trust funds, not just in our community, but across the state, um, which has had a very beneficial effect for uh, our local affordable housing trust fund and for those organizations across Iowa. Um, I would I would also just mention briefly, I know the city has been working relentlessly on this issue for, I think, nearly six years now. Um, I'm happy to reach out to Jeff and see if there's anything additionally that we could do at the state level to try and give them tools or flexibility. Unfortunately, as you well know, local control has become a dirty word uh, with Republicans controlling the state house in, in Des Moines. And so um, they have really hampered the ability of cities, counties, school boards to make their own decisions and taking tools out of their toolbox uh, when it comes to these kinds of, of um, policymaking tools. So I'll reach out to Jeff as soon as session is, um, as soon as we get we get back to, to session here on, on Monday and see what we're able to do. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I think this is likely something that will have to be resolved at the city level. And I, I, I'm not sure what additional work there were, that we'll be able to do at the state level, just given the current political dynamics. I wish I had better news. Well, actually, that's uh, to me, that's a reasonable response, Zach. I yeah. think reaching out to the city and uh, uh, encouraging and supporting local uh, options that we have for financing is uh, would be very beneficial. I'll be in touch. All right. So we will also. Um, Ask another, we will ask, start asking questions from the audience. Um, so we will accept questions from the audience. Please enter your question into the chat window and it will be read by the moderator. All legislators will have the opportunity to respond to each question. Legislators each have two minutes to respond. Out of respect for all present, please do not interrupt the speakers. All right, and so our first question is what bills currently hold the highest priority and why? Uh, this is Senator Bolcom, let me start. Um, we're ready to adjourn like tomorrow, if we could. Uh, the unfinished business is the budget. So I would have to say 
uh, churning through the various budget bills that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks is probably the top priority to get done. Uh, there's a number of things that are still out there, a lot of bad stuff still out there. And uh, the sooner we adjourn, the sooner we can put that stuff on the shelf and move on to the fall elections. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, there's uh, there are plenty of bad bills that are still out there, including the governor's attempt to privatize our state's public education system by introducing a voucher's program. Um, there are continuing attempts by Republicans to continue scrutinizing uh, the work that our, our educators do in the classroom every day, uh, whether it's threatening them with jail time. Um, you know, these thankfully, uh, some, some of these bills have died. The idea that we're going to put a camera in every room, um, you know, and, and some of these other quote, quote unquote transparency uh, matters that are, are, are really um all about just trying to drive teachers out of the profession uh, are, are hopefully not going to be moving forward. But the sooner that we adjourn, the better. Um, if any of you were ever fans of Game of Thrones, uh, you're familiar with the expression, what is dead may never die. Uh, and that applies 100% to the legislature. So nothing's truly dead until we have uh, gaveled out and, and we're headed home. Um, one thing that I would say that we're also going to be keeping a very close eye on is what happens at the federal level uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court and potentially uh, the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision. If that decision is handed down by the Supreme Court in June, uh, or, or not just the Roe decision, but potentially also undermining the Casey decision, um, we have really serious concerns about what what Republicans might do, potentially calling us back into a special session to try and um, pass more extreme restrictions on, on abortion access in our state. Um, you know, we've uh, we've done some good things this session. You know, one of the, the bills that I'm I think I don't know if the governor signed it yet, but that will move forward is is essentially making sure that our school buildings um, are able to test for radon and hope, hopefully um, try to, to lower levels of radon in our schools. <clears throat> we know that radon exposure has really negative effects on young people and on teachers uh, who are in those buildings. And so uh, there are you know, a handful of good bipartisan things that have happened this year. But, and I think we're seeing some of these questions here in the chat. Uh, there are a lot of uh, very negative things that have happened as well. And I was just gonna comment that normally we have joint budget targets between the House and the Senate, and they identify what the target is in terms of the dollars that will be spent for education, for human services, for the judicial branch and justice, all of those edu or those bills will have a target. And usually the House and the Senate agree on that target. And then there's negotiations that happen between the two chambers. We do not have joint targets this year. Um, the House is starting all of the budget bills. They are sending them over to the Senate without any agreements. And so needless to say, those bills will look very different when they bounce back to the House, and then we have to debate them or take them up again. So it, it slows the process down in light of the fact that we don't have those joint efforts in terms of a compromise on what the targets actually will be. There are a number of bills that are still floating out there. We hope a lot of them die. And as Zach said, they aren't dead until we adjourn. And so the sooner we get out of there, the better right now. Um, the bottle bill is still out there. And obviously that has, um, is a bill that has been in the Ways and Means Committee. It passed out of the Ways and Means Committee and will be a bill that I think will be debated on the floor of the House within this next week or two. 
Um, they're talking about getting out on April 9th, but we're also hearing it will be the following week. So um, we'll see what happens, but it means that the leadership in the House and the Senate need to come together, come up with what their agreements will be, and then obviously we can get our work done and, and finish up and adjourn. All right, thank you legislators. All right, so the second question from the audience is, the league helped pass the original bottle bill in the late 1970s and has reviewed and commented on many recent proposals for solutions. Iowa State University economist, Dr. Dermot Hayes has studied the bill and recommended a three cent handling fee. Why are lawmakers limiting the handling fee and why limit the higher fee only to redemption centers? Why aren't dealers or retailers offered this fee? Thank you. Hi, I think I put an answer to that in the chat. Um, the bottle bill is a, is a moving target. The Senate has offered um, the three cents handling fee. The House has a different structure on the handling fee. Um, I, I, like, I, I think that we will be doing a lot of negotiating next week to see um, if we can come to some kind of agreement somewhere between one cents and three cents. Um, and uh, I mean, just <laughs> keep paying attention, I guess. Um, keep sending us your thoughts and comments. Uh, but I mean, as of right now, it's anything is is up for change and and um, and up for negotiation. Amy, can you talk about some of the provisions in the bill in terms of what it does to the grocers and that? Because I think people might be interested in finding out some of the specifics. <laughs> Sure. Um, so one of the one of the um, big parts of the bill is uh, allowing the certain retailers to opt out of accepting the cans. I know that that is something that um, is not necessarily popular, um, but it is going to be something that's that I, in my opinion, stays um, that they can opt out. But then we also have different um, mechanisms for for redeeming your cans um the you know promotion of the mobile redemption centers um i think the senate maybe has um in their version um making allowing distributors to become redemption centers um the let's see there's a lot in there um the the handling fees in the house it's a one cent um, increase for uh, dealers, retailers, um, a one cent increase for non-alcoholic um, beverages, and then a half cent increase um, in handling fee, which is actually a tax credit um, to the barrel tax for alcoholic um, beverages. Um, the, the reason for the tax credit to the barrel tax is we have no way of of knowing um, how much they, those distributors are keeping in unredeemed monies. Um, uh, supposedly there's no way that they can figure that out and let us know. In my opinion, that is not true. Um, so by, by doing it this way, we would be able to keep uh, track of, of the unredeemed monies that um, the alcoholic distributors are, are being able to keep. Um, 
I, one of the things that I, that I recently was talking to, um, you know, my, my Republican colleagues about is, um, you know, ABD is technically uh, the alcoholic beverage division. You know, the state is technically a, um, distributor and I have to, I just stop and think because they're changing the names of like retailers, dealers, retailer agent, and all of these different things. Um, but the, the state does distribute alcohol. Um, and so they also have unredeemed monies. Um, and so there is some talk about having, um, you know, either all of it, half of it, um, put back into the state's budget for different, you know, nonprofit um, um, programs that we have. Um, I think the homeless, um, the homeless housing assistance program, which helps people who are, um, you know, trying to um, um, move from, you know, being um, unhoused to, to getting into a place where, where they can, um, you know, where they can stay and they can live. Um, uh, things to help with, uh, environmental issues, um, um, like the, um, adopt a highway programs to help, um, make sure that we're, we're not seeing, um, increase in littering, um, and, okay. uh, a couple other things. So I, Sure, I've gone over two minutes. I, yeah, I, yep. And just a reminder, legislators, that you only have two minutes to answer the question. But our, Joe, Joe, would you like to go? Pretty big answer for two yeah. minutes. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to say a few things. I mean, the bottle bill is, is basically unraveling, right? It's because we have Hy-Vee and Fairway and these convenience stores that have quit taking bottles and cans. And they're essentially breaking the law without any kind of oversight from the state. Uh, if this were left up to legislators to solve, we would solve this issue. Unfortunately, this bill has been hijacked once again by powerful special interests. It reminds me of Sarah Barron's question about uh, the landlords and the, our ability to do anything about that. We have the beer and pop distributors who are making a fortune off of unclaimed bottles and cans because the redemption rate has plummeted because it's so hard to return a bottle or can is up and they're suggesting and maybe up to $50 million is going unclaimed those nickels. It's kind of a, it's kind of a tax without a service, right? When people recycle their cans, they expect them to be uh, recycled and reused in, in some format going down the road. And unfortunately this solution, just adding a couple cents to the handling fee is good for the 60 redemption centers that currently exist in Iowa, but it is going to fall way short of trying to replace or stand up a, a standalone redemption uh, operation in Iowa. If in fact, we're going to let retailers like Hy-Vee and Fairway off the hook for collecting cans and bottles. So the bill that we see is a special interest bill. It's preventing us from getting to this $50 million, which could be the money that would set up a new third party redemption center. Um, so it's it, the bill that we saw in the Senate actually changed. We saw a decent bill on Wednesday with, with an attempt to get after some of that unclaimed money. Uh, the next day, the, the amendment that was run in the Senate actually had a cut in the excise tax for beer, in addition to having just a lousy bill uh, a bill that's essentially going to result in the bottle bill unraveling as we go forward. Thank you.
Thank you. All right, so our next question will be, what can we do to get the press back on the Senate floor? Great question. So, you know, unfortunately, the, the majority leader, Jack Whitford, um, essentially gets to, to make those decisions unilaterally. So uh, the best thing that you can do is elect a Democratic majority. And I'll tell you that as majority leader, I'll make sure that we get the press back on press row. Um, I have also uh, taken to starting a Monday morning, essentially, um, press briefing where I meet with the press up in the gallery and, and just take their questions. And we talk for usually about 30 minutes about what's going on uh, for the upcoming week and, and what have you. We've also really stepped up our outreach to the press to try and make sure that they're fully informed about the amendments that we're running on various Republican bills um, and that they're staying in the loop as, as best as we can, uh, given that we can't just walk over literally on the floor and explain what's what's going on. Uh, in the way that we used to be able to. I still run up to the gallery, which is where the press are now posted, usually at least once or twice a day to just check in on various things in addition to the Monday mornings and in addition to all of the outreach that we're doing proactively. So I think that the press obviously, and we would like them back on the floor, they would like to be back on the floor, but I do think that all things considered, um, they feel like they're, at least from us, getting a fair bit of information. The real problem is on the Republican side, where they basically just keep the press completely in the dark and don't talk to them about what they're doing. So that's that's where the real problem is. And, and unfortunately, uh, as long as Republicans have the majority, they're, the majority gets their way. So that's where we're at. Okay, thank you so much. So uh, we will go on to the next audience question. So the next one is the 2020 pandemic relief package gave every family with children a set amount of money on a monthly basis, irrespective of income. It lifted a large percentage of families out of poverty. It reduced the need to verify sources of income, savings, et cetera, before assistance was granted. Poverty is a huge problem that limits progress in almost everything else, adequate housing, reliable transportation, food security, health. Would you support establishing a more permanent grant program to be offered by the state of Iowa? I'm happy to take a stab at that. Um, you know, Donna, great, great question. The child tax credit was a, a huge boost for a huge number of, of families at a time where they really needed the help. Um, you know, today, obviously, uh, that program has expired. <clears throat> and I think that there are ongoing conversations about how to bring it back in a potentially means tested way uh, from the federal government. Um, I'd say two things. First of all, Iowa Republicans have no interest in helping uh, working class or, or um, low income families. So that they certainly won't do that as long as they have the majority. And the second thing is that Republicans have enacted a, a massive tax cut that overwhelmingly benefits the ultra rich that will really handicap the ability of future state governments to try and, and enact that kind of a policy in the future without reversing those, those tax cuts, which would take some, some time and, and political effort. So um, Republicans have, have given not just ultra rich individuals, but also large corporations um, very significant tax cuts this this year. Uh, Democrats supported um, middle class tax cuts that would have benefited um, folks who are not in that highest ultra rich tier uh, or, or big corporations. But unfortunately, um, those were defeated, uh, certainly in the Senate on a party line vote. And, and Mary I don't, or Amy, I don't know what if you had a similar amendment in the House. Um, Democrats, on the other hand, look at the, the very significant budget surplus that we have, which is largely the result 
of federal dollars from the American Rescue Plan. And think that the best way to use that surplus is not to give the ultra rich yet another tax cut, but instead to invest that specifically into our public education system, which is one of the most important tools that we have to break the cycle of intergenerational poverty and give young people opportunity to, to lead a better life than their parents. Um, Republicans voted our amendments on that subject down, uh, preferring to spend that money um, on, on uh, more tax cuts for the ultra wealthy in our state. So um, there's a very clear contrast in visions for the future of Iowa, um, whether we want to become you know, the next Kansas uh, or whether we want to get back to the Iowa values that have defined the state since our founding. We would also need a different governor if we were going to do this. Um, this governor does not support our families, does not support low-income Iowans, does not support um, people who are struggling. Um, we know that. So um, if people want to see changes, that's what elections are about. And that's why um, we need to elect people who do support those kinds of initiatives. And right now, we do not have the majority in the House or Senate, and we don't have a governor who supports those kinds of programs. And until we do, um, we're not gonna be able to see those kinds of things move forward. Obviously, there is an attempt, and, and Zach talked about it at the federal government, to enact that and to make it permanent. But again, there would be means testing. So the people who need it the most would be the ones who would be eligible for it. And unfortunately, that has been stalled at the federal level too. And um, we all know why. Obviously, they don't have the votes to get it through right now either. And um, that's unfortunate because it has helped so many people. And it is something that, again, really helps our working families. All right, thank you. All right, so we will move on to our next question and then another final question. So Senator, oh, excuse me, Pre uh, President Biden announced yesterday that the United States would welcome 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Is there anything that needs to happen with the state budget to support that effort? I get that impression that local agencies already have their hands full with the Afghan refugees. Well, I, I hope that the state uh, extends a hand to uh, refugees from Ukraine. I mean, we 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 that's that's who we are. That's what we do. We should we should help people in need. Uh, selfishly, we we need more people in Iowa. I mean, the state needs more bodies, more people to contribute to to make our state even a, a better place. The governor has at her disposal several hundred million, probably $700 million of American Rescue Act money um, available. I don't think that the state does not have a shortage of resources um, and could invest some of our $2 billion surplus or some of that ARP money. Uh, it's just whether or not the governor has a will to do it. Uh, I think that you'd find bipartisan support in the legislature if there were a proposal uh, potentially to, to put resources in that area. Yeah, oddly enough, the state relies on the federal government for all the, all the funding we have to, to assist refugees in their settlement. We, we put up a couple hundred thousand dollars to a very small program 
uh, for the state, but we rely on federal funding to staff all the refugee work we do in Iowa. And uh, it's time for the state probably to make a bigger investment. All right, thank you so much. Um, okay, so our next question is, where is the support for small businesses in either the House or Senate? Can, can you repeat the question one more time, please? Absolutely. It, where is the support for small businesses in either the House or Senate? It's a great question. You know, I, look, I, <clears throat> there there was a, a tax bill that the Senate just passed um, this past week that had some really good stuff in it, uh, including um, creating sales tax exemptions for period products for adult and child diapers uh, and, and some other specific areas. But it also included um, a tax increase on uh, computer and peripheral electronic equipment. Uh, that is going to hamper small businesses. Um, and it's going to make it more expensive for especially small businesses to invest in the, the technology that they need uh, to get started. And so, you know, I, I think that this is a, a <clears throat> Republican controlled legislature that is much more focused on big businesses than it is on small ones. Um, you know, we haven't really, I wouldn't say seen a small business agenda from, from this, uh, this Republican legislature. Uh, I think that there are things that we could be doing to support small businesses, which, by the way, are the, the largest source of employment in, in our state. Um, but I, I think that this legislature has been much more focused on providing um, large tax breaks to, to big corporations uh, rather than small ones. Anyone else? Okay. So, all right, so I think we will uh, wrap up now. So thanks to all of you, um, those with questions and those with responses for an informative session. Thanks also to our co-sponsors, Center for Worker Justice, Iowa Civil Liberties Council, Johnson County Interfaith Coalition, Iowa Shares, and the LULAC Council 308 and to the local television staff for recording this event and live streaming it to the leaks page. Rebroadcast of this forum will be run on Iowa City Channel 4, Coral Vision, and North Liberty TV. See the respective websites for programming. So we do have a, a future event, um, and that is the League of Women Voters Johnson County. It's sp sponsoring an event on April 21st at 7 p.m. Um, our guest speaker is Temple Hyatt on understanding the proposed right to firearms amendment. Um, this is a virtual event, so please watch the league's web Facebook page and website for registration information and watch for our candidate forum series later this spring and our legislative forums beginning again in January of 2023. Thank you guys so much and have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.